Chapter 11 of Serapion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Der Fragwürdiger. Serapion by Francis Stevens. Chapter 11. Verschlinger des Lebens. My face in the mirror bore a faint, sketchy resemblance to that of the unreal but nonetheless troublesome vision by which I was intermittently afflicted. The resemblance accounted for the vague familiarity that had enveloped it from the first. The face in the mirror, though, was much younger, and resolved flat up in its eyes like a lighted fire. You, I addressed my reflection, are not a sneak. You are not going to be made one. Tonight you will present yourself to Mr. James Barton Moore, and you will inform him that the little trick of hypnotism performed by his wife last August will either be reversed by her, or he himself will pay for it unpleasantly. I believe, and my arm muscles flexed in provado, that Mr. Jimmy Moore will think twice before he refuses. That was what I said, but in my heart I yearned suddenly to go and fling myself abject at the feet of Alicia Moore and entreat her to help me. It was a cold night and the afternoon's scattered flakes had increased to a heavy snowfall. Alighting from the car, not mine this time but the transit company's, I found the snow inches deep. I can still recall the feel of it blown against my face like light cold finger touches. Plowing through it, I came again to the dead alive house. That other wizard had been in summer. The twin lawns, one green and close cropped, the other high grown with weeds, had stood out contrastingly then. There had been a line of sharp demarcation between Moore's clean, freshly painted half of the house and the other half's dirt freckled wall. Now all that sharp difference was blurred and indistinct. The snow, blue-white in the swaying circles of light from a corner arc lamp, had buried both the lawns. Joining the roofs in whiteness, drifting across the porches, swirling in the air, it obliterated all but a hint of difference between the living half and the dead. Though the windows of one part were dark as those of the other, a faint glow shone through the curtained glazing of Moore's door. Now that I was here, I almost hoped that he and his wife were out. The accusation I must make was strange to absurdity. I braced myself, however, opened the gate, and as I did so, a hand dropped on my shoulder from behind. A man had come upon me soundlessly through the snow. In my nerve-wrecked state, I whirled and struck at him. He caught my wrist. Here, I am now highwayman Clay. Niels, I laughed shakily. You startled me. Beckwith stared with a sudden close attention that I found myself shrinking away from. For weeks I had been keeping a secret at some cost. Though I had come here to reveal it, the habit of concealment was still on me. Your nerves used to be better than that, said Beckwith shortly. You calling on Moore? I queried. Thought there was some kind of vendetta between you. You wouldn't come here with me, I remember. I'm glad you remember something, he retorted gravely. You have a very nice hospitable family, though. 
They took me in last night and fed me on the bare strength of my word that I'd been invited. I say, Niels, that's too bad. In my desperate search for Van the previous evening, I had clean forgotten my dinner invitation to Bearquist. Reaching home near midnight, I had received a thoroughly sisterly called on from Kathy, who had waited up to express her frank opinion of a brother who not only invited a friend to dinner without forewarning her, but neglected even to be present when the friend arrived. It seemed, too, that Roberta had dined there on Kathy's own invitation, and the two girls had unitedly agreed that poor Niels was queer and not very desirable. He had committed the double offense of talking wild theories to dad, verbally ignoring the feminine element, and at the same time staring bad out of countenance whenever her eyes were not actually on him. I had informed Kathy that Bert should feel highly honored, since Niels was generally too shy even to look at a girl, much less stare at her, and that as the family's support I should certainly invite whom I pleased to dinner. As for Niels, I had regretted missing him, but knew he was too casual himself to hold the lapse against me. Now I began an apology that was rather wandering, for my mind was otherwise concerned. I wished to tell him about the fifth presence. Before I entered Moore's house, it would be very well that I should tell Niels of my errand. Why, in the name of all reason, was I possessed by the sense of shame that shut my lips whenever I tried to open them concerning the haunting face? Cutting the apologies short, Niels forgave me, explained that though out of sympathy with Moore's work, he occasionally called to play chess with him, and then we were going up the snow-blanketed walk side by side. Even the chess sometimes ends in a row, Niels added gloomily. I wouldn't play him at all if he hadn't beaten me so many times. Perhaps some day I'll get the score even, and then I shan't come here any more. Moore is. Did he ever tell you that I kept my appointment with him? Which one? The question leaped out cuttingly sharp. The only one I ever made with him, of course. That day you introduced us in the restaurant. You haven't been coming here since? No, why should you think that? We had checked again, halfway up the walk. As we stood, Niels caught my shoulders and swung me around till the arc lamp rays beat on my face. He scrutinized me from under frowning brows. You've lost something, he said bluntly. I can't tell exactly what. I don't know what story your eyes hide, but they hide one. Clay. Don't think me an officious meddler, but you, you have your family dependent on you, and, oh, why do I beat about the bush, that girl you will marry some day. She's rather wonderful. For her sake, if not your own, tell me the truth. Has Moore involved you in some of his cursed dangerous experiments? Tell me. Is it that, or... His voice softened. Are you merely worn out with the common and comparatively safe kinds of trouble? I've had trouble enough to worry any fellow. Yes, but is any part of it to be laid at the store? He jerked his head toward Moore's dimly radiant portal. A face, a face! Sheer panic choked the words in my throat. 
I had begun betraying the secret which every atom of my being demanded should be kept. Yes, a face. A face is not necessarily a chart of the owner's doings. I wrenched roughly from his grasp. Since when have you set up as a critic in physiognomy, Niels? When one has a friend, one cares to look beneath the surface, he said simply. Well, don't look with the air of hunting out a criminal, then. I have as good a right to call here as you, haven't I? Moore sent me a letter asking me to drop around, so I... I thought I would. I'm tired and need distraction. What's the harm? Without answering, he eyed me through a long moment, then turned quietly and went on up into the porch. Standing hesitant, I glanced upward, looking for a light in the windows above. Again I saw the slanting roofs, blended in snow. Months ago, in a momentary illusion of moonlight, I had seen them look just so. The thought brought me a tiny prick of apprehension. Not fear, but the startled uneasiness one might feel at coming to a place one has never visited and knowing it for the place one has seen in a dream. Nevertheless, I followed Niels to the door. Another maid opened it than the one who had admitted Roberta and myself in August. She was a great, craggy, hard-faced, old-colored woman, whom Niels addressed familiarly as Sabina, and who made him rather glumly welcome in accents that betrayed her southern origin. She assumed, I suppose, that Niels and I had come together, and my car did not precede me into Moore's sanctum. The latter was in the library again. The shades and curtains were drawn tight, which accounted for the not-at-home look of the windows from outside. I learned later that he frequently denied himself to callers, even near acquaintances, unless they came by appointment. His letter to me had been ignored too long to come under that heading. I wonder, would he have refused to see me that night given my choice? In my very first step across the library's threshold, I realized that my battle was to be an even more difficult one than I had feared. Passing the doorway, I entered, physically and consciously entered, the same field of tension, to call it that, which had centralized about Alicia at the climax of my previous experience. It was less masterful than then. There was not the same drain on my physical strength, nor the feeling of being en rapport with the movements of others. But the condition was nonetheless present. I knew it as surely and actually as one recognizes a marked change in atmospheric temperature, or, to use a closer simile, as one feels entry into the radius of electrical force produced by a certain type of powerful generator. There is no simile which will exactly express what I mean. The consciousness involved is other than normal, and only a person who had been possessed by it could fully understand. On that first occasion, I had been sure that my impressions were shared by the others present. This time, some minutes passed before I became convinced that Berquist and James Moore, at least, were insensitive to the condition. The library appeared as I had seen it first, save that the lamp broken then had been replaced by another, with a Japanese art shade made of painted silk. 
Near the large reading table with the lamp, a small stand had been drawn up and a chessboard laid upon it. In anticipation of Neil's arrival, Moore had been arranging the pieces. They were red and white ivory men, finely carved. They and the Japanese lampshade made a glow of exotic color, and the shadow behind which said, Alicia, a dim figure, pallid and immobile. By one of those surface thoughts that flash across moments of intensity, I noted that Moore was dressed in a gray suit, patterned with a faint, large check in lighter gray. Then he had recognized me, and the man's pale eyebrows lifted. You've brought Barber, he said to Niels. No, denied my friend. Met him at the door. How do, Alicia? He strode across the room to where Mrs. Moore sat in the shadow. Under other conditions I should have felt embarrassed. By Moore's tone and Neil's non-committal response, they had placed me as an intruder, received without even a gloss of welcome for courtesy's sake. But to me it seemed only strange that they could speak at all in ordinary tones through this atmosphere of breathless tension. A voice here, I thought, should be either a shriek or a whisper. Then Alicia's dry monotone. You should have come alone, Niels. You have brought one with you who is very evil. I know him. He is an eater of lives. Dear lady, protested Niels half-jokingly, surely you don't apply that cannibalistic description to my friend here. He might take it that way. How he takes it is nothing, shrugged Alicia. There's one too many in this room. There are four of us here. And there is also a fifth, and I think your friend is more aware of that than even I. Moore's previously unenthusiastic face lighted a quick eagerness. He pounced on Delicia's original phrase like a cat jumping for a mouse. An eater of life! Did you say this invisible fifth presence is an eater of life, Alicia? I did not, she retorted precisely. I said an eater of lives. Everyone does not know that. No, but wait, Alicia. This is really interesting. He turned from her to us. There's a particularly horrid old German legend about such a being. He informed us of it with the air of one imparting some delightful news. Give me a German legend always for pure horror, but this excels the average. Der Verschlinger des Lebens. The devourer of life. Very interesting. Now the question arises. Did Alicia read that yawn some time in the past, and is this the subliminal report of it coming out now? Or does she really sense an alien force which has entered the room in your company? What's your impression, Barber? Have you any? Your psychic yourself knew it the first time I saw you. Is anyone here but we four? By a great effort I forced my lips to answer. I couldn't say this. I have a chair, Barber, and take your time. He was all sudden kindliness. The active sort, with a motive behind it, as I knew well enough now. To him I was not a guest, but an experiment. I haven't a doubt, he asserted cheerfully, that you and Alicia sense a presence that entered with you 
and which such poor moulds as Niels and myself are blind to. Now, don't deny it. Anyone possessing a psychic gift who denies or tries to smother it is not only unwise but selfish. Supremely selfish. And it's a curious fact that one powerful psychic will often bring out the undeveloped potentialities of another. Alicia may have already done that for you, when you were here before. That will do. Abruptly deserting Alicia, Niels showed down upon us. There was wrath in every line of his dark face. Jimmy, that boy is my friend. If he has psychic potentialities, as you call it, let him alone. He doesn't wish to develop into a ghost-ridden, hysterical, semi-human monstrosity with one foot in this world and the other across the border. Really, drawled Moore, that description runs beyond even the insolence I've learned to expect from you, Bergquist. My wife is a psychic. Niels was not too easily crushed, but this time he had brought confusion on himself. Ghost-ridden, hysterical, semi-human monstrosity may have been an excellent description for Alicia. It is certain, however, that Niels had forgotten her when he voiced it. He flushed to the ears and stammered through an apology, to which Moore listened in grim silence. Then Alicia spoke with her customary dry directness. I am not offended. My guides do not like you, Niels. But that is because your opposition interferes with the work. Personally, I like you for speaking frankly always. Take your unfortunate young friend, Mr. Barber, and go away now. Alicia! Moore was half pleading, half indignant. You agreed with me that Barber had possibilities of mediumship almost as great as your own. And yet you sent him away. Think of the work. I tried to send him away the first time. From beyond the lamp, Alicia's enormous eyes glinted mockingly at her husband. You believe, she went on, that Mr. Barber was naturally psychic but undeveloped. Many times we have disagreed in similar cases. Your theory that more than half the human race might properly trained, be sensitive to the etheric vibrations of astral and spiritual beings as true enough. Then why did you... Don't argue, James. That tires me. I say that your belief is correct. But I have told you, and through me my guides have told you, that not everyone who is a natural sensitive is worthy of being developed. I consulted you. Moore's voice trembled with suppressed irritation. I consulted you and you... I said that a tremendous psychic possibility enveloped Mr. Barber. That was true. Had I told you that the possibility was evil, that would have been equally true. But you would not have yielded to my judgment and sent him away, as I tried to do. Alicia, cried her husband. Are we never to have any clear understandings? Possibly not, she said, with cool indifference. I am what I am. Also, I am a channel for all forces, good or evil. My guides protect me, of course. They will not let any bad spirit harm me. 
But I think Mr. Barber was not glad that he stayed when I wished him to go. He has come back to me for help. I am not sure that I wish to help him. It was a long time before I was rested from my first struggle with the one he is afraid of. Niels made an impatient movement. I don't believe Clay needs any help except, pardon me Alicia, except to keep away from this house and you. Then why did you return here? Because, interpolated Moore with a scowl for Niels, he grew interested in his own possibilities. This attempt to frighten him is not only absurd, but the worst thing possible for him. Of course, the invisible forces are of different kinds, and of course some of them are inimical. But fear is the only dangerous weapon they have. If they can't frighten you, they can't harm you. Alicia, cut in Niels, seems to disagree there. Alicia does agree. She inclines to repel the so-called evil beings, not from fear of them, but because they are more apt to trespass than the friendlier powers. They demand too much of a strength. In consequence, I have had an insufficient opportunity to study them. If Barber is psychic, and I should say that he very obviously is, then his strength, combined with Alicia's, should be great enough for almost any strain. You are interfering here, Berquist. I won't have it. I will not have it. And my friend is to be sacrificed so that you may study demonology? Berquist, I have nothing to do with demons or devas, devils or flibberty gibbets. You use the nomenclature of a past age. Verschlinger des Lebens, quoted Niels quickly. You didn't boggle over nomenclature when Alicia warned us that an eater of life was present. Oh God, give me patience, groaned Moore. I tried to trace a reference and you... He broke off and wheeled to the small, shadowy figure beyond the lamplight. Alicia, exactly what did you mean when you said that an eater of lives had entered the room? You can put us straight there at least. I man, drawled Alicia, one of those quaint, harmless beings whom you are so anxious to study at anybody's expense. Not a demon, certainly, in the sense that Niels means. But not company I care for, either. No, I am not afraid of this one. He has the strength of an enormous greed. Of a dead spirit who covets life, but he will not trap me again into lending my strength to his purpose. His? Whose? Do be plain for once, Alicia. I try to be, she retorted composedly. I could give him a name that one of you at least would recognize, but that would please him too well. There's power in a name. Everyone does not know that, know how to use it. This one does. He bears his name written across his forehead. He wills that I shall see it and speak it now. Once he surprised me into speaking it, but that was Mr. Barber's fault. He threw me off balance at a critical moment by turning on the lights. You have probably forgotten the name I spoke then, but adopt if Mr. Barber has forgotten. This one whom I refuse to name has no power over me. I have many friends among the living dead who protect me from such dead spirits as this one. 
Just a minute, Alicia. Moore was exaggeratedly patient. I can believe in a dead body, and through you I've come to believe in life spirits disembodied. But a dead spirit? That would be like an extinguished flame. It would have no existence. She shook her head. Please don't argue, James. You know that hires me. A spirit cannot perish, but a spirit may die, and having died exists in death eternal. There's life eternal, and there's death eternal. They are the living spirits of the so-called dead. They are many and harmless. My guides are of their number. Also, they are dead spirits. They are the ones to beware of, because they covet life. Such a one is he whom I called an eater of lives, and who is better known to Mr. Barber than to me. That is not my fault, however, and now I wish no more to do with any of it. I must insist, James, that you ask Mr. Barber to leave. In fact, if he remains in the house five minutes longer, I shall go out of it. Her strange eyes opened suddenly till a gleam of white was plainly visible all around the white blackness of them. Her porcelain, doll-like placidity vanished in an instant. Make him go, she cried. I tell you, there is an evil in this room, which is accumulating force every moment. I tell you, something bad is coming. Bad. Do you hear me? And I won't be involved in it. I won't. I won't. Her voice rose to a querulous shriek. A spasm twitched every feature. And then she had sunk back in her chair with drooped lids. Bad, she murmured softly. End of chapter 11 Recording by Der Fragwürdiger